Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub podcast, I'll be interviewing Corey Haynes. Corey is based in Chicago and is the co-founder and CTO at Harkin, where he works to enhance audience engagement in journalism, specifically uh, by helping journalists interact with audiences earlier in the editorial process than they would normally. Harkin is a powerful tool for journalists and newsrooms that engages with readers to help news providers write the stories um, that meet the actual interests and explicit needs of their audience and fill the information gaps that people really want filled. Corey is the author of a LeanPub book, Understanding the Four Rules of Simple Design and Other Lessons from Watching Thousands of Pairs Work on Conway's Game of Life. Based on his five years of extensive interaction with developers through the Code Retreat training format, the book is focused on exploring ways to, and I'm quoting here, build flexible, adaptable software systems by better understanding Kent Beck's Four Rules of Simple Design. In this interview, we're going to talk about Corey's professional interests, his, his book, um, and in the, at the very end, his experience using LeanPub and any ways we can maybe improve it for him and other authors. So thank you, Corey, for being on the LeanPub podcast. Oh, well, thank you. It's great to be here. Um, I usually like to start interviews by asking people for their if they could tell us their origin story. Um, I can see from uh, your profiles on your profiles online that you've had a really a varied career. Um, you started out studying mathematics and ended up in software development in various CTO roles. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, how you got uh, into software development from mathematics and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, I was one of the really lucky people in the sort of late 70s, early 80s. My father had gotten into programming, and so he made sure we always had a computer around. So I kind of grew up with computers and actually started programming when I was about 12, mostly cheating at games. Because back then we had the source came with it. And so if you didn't get, couldn't get past a point, you could hit break, look at the source code around there. And then over time, I kind of figured out that you could change um, the code. And rather than figuring out what you needed to do, you could just change the code to put a jump or a go to um, past that point and sort of, you know, resume line 200 or something. And then over time, I got into BBSs and um, found a mentor on there that uh, helped me learn C and then moved into C++. And then I had never really thought about being a programmer. And I had gone, I had always wanted to be a uh, theoretical cosmologist. So I wanted to study physics and and sort of the Big Bang and all of that. And then I got into um, college and found out that physics actually requires experiments. And I wasn't really that fond of that. (laughs) Um, but I loved the math part of it. And so my math professor um, had sort of taken me under his wing and I switched over. I did actually, I took trigonometry and found like just the beauty of the unit circle, which is probably a pretty nerdy thing to say. But I remember just like it being like, oh, this is something that I, I find beauty in and just the purity and the abstractness of it. And that kind of shifted me over to mathematics and um I had planned on continuing on to get my PhD in math and be a professor, um, but I ended up spending my last year of university in Hungary on a program studying mathematics called the Budapest Semesters in Mathematics, and fell in love with the country, so I decided to stay. Needed to find a job, got started teaching English, and along the way, I... um, kind of started programming again. I mean, I'd always programmed here and there in C and and done this and that and was programming and got tired of teaching English because I was a very bad English teacher. 
and went and looked for a job and found a job in Hungary at a web studio. And I ended up, I actually started as a salesperson trying to sell, this was in 96. And so I was selling, trying to sell website development to companies in a country where I think less than 1% of the populace had internet access. And so this was 96 and the web was just at the beginning. And so nobody knew what it was. And like, I remember one, you know, talking to one company and they were like, yeah, we'll take a half page ad. And I was like, well, it doesn't really work. You don't really take a half page ad on the web. This was pre being able to take a half page ad on the web. And so went through that, um, ended up getting fired. Um, unsurprisingly, but along the way, I had done a lot of Excel programming for our sales team and the, about half the company was leaving to start a web studio and the, um, person who was going to be running it, who was the lead of the sales team, he asked me if I wanted to come as their programmer. And so this was 90, the, um, this must've been, yeah, 90 beginning of 96, end of 95 or so, I guess somewhere around there. And so then I spent, um, I learned HTML, learned CSS, learned a little bit of, um, I was, we were on the Microsoft stack. So this was pre ASP and I learned, um, how to do that. Then ASP came out and I just kind of built up this web studio in Hungary. It was, we ended up being the largest web studio there. Um, and got into like every day writing code and building for customers and all of that. And it just, just sort of never looked back. And so that was, it was like, well, this is something I love doing. So when I came back to the States in 97, um, I had, I found a job and, um, started programming, went up through the Microsoft stack till about 2008, then switched over to Ruby for, um, well, still, I know a bunch of languages, but, um, I really been doing Ruby, um, for a long time. And that was, uh, 2008 was a year before you started the code retreat. Uh, yeah. Process. Is that right? Yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that got started and what that experience was like. Yeah. So code retreat came about because, um, uh, there were four of us, uh, me and this guy, Gary Bernhardt, guy, Patrick, um, and guy, Nyan Hadratwala were at a conference I go to every year called code mash. And we were, uh, I like to say we were doing what programmers do, which is complain about other people's code. And um, had this idea of like, why don't people practice? I was uh, at the very beginning of this, uh, what it ended up being called the pair programming tour, where I spent a year um, traveling around programming with people in exchange for room and board, and just kind of took a year off of work um, and just did that. And so um, I was thinking a lot about practice. The software craftsmanship movement had just, was just at the beginnings of people talking about it and practice was a big part of it and that was sort of my focus and we the four of us decided just to put on a, a workshop see what happened that was focused very much on practicing software development rather than sort of learning a new technology and uh, since i was traveling around i had the opportunity to take the ideas that we had and some of the lear learnings we did on the first two of these code retreats and um really help define them and take them around, do them in different places. Um, went to Romania, did one in Romania where um, a guy named Alex and his wife Maria, um, they 
took over and started running them in Romania. And so the two of us, or the three of us, um, got back together in the next year and started really fine tuning the format. And then by 2010, we had a format for the workshop that was really solid. And then I just started traveling around doing them and um, kind of seeing what they were. They were very much focused on practicing software development and very much focused on the sort of minute by minute decisions that you make while you're writing software during the, the um, refactoring process. So um, not at that high level of, of design patterns and some of the uh, like solid principles and things like that. But what do you, how do you make your decisions when you're refactoring? Yeah, I really like you. You have a couple of lines in your book where you talk about um, part of the code retreat where you're working on, I'm, I, I think I understand this correctly, the source code for Conway's Game of Life. Yeah. And um, uh, you talk about the impact of uh, repeatedly deleting the code you've written and the subsequent separation of identity from code. Um, and I found that really interesting and fascinating. And also, I mean, it's tied in with the idea of practicing, right? Um, and the idea that you, you situate yourself psychologically in front of the code, not as something that is ever going to be used, not as something that is ever going to be like sort of owned by you or, you know, uh, that you will ever be held sort of seriously accountable for. And then with all that baggage out of the way, you can focus on your technique and how you, how you're thinking and how you're feeling when you're, when you're coding. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's funny because people sort of first time participants often after the first session have trouble with that deleting, but it's part of the workshop is really taking like, you just spend 45 minutes writing this code because the format, that is, you spend 45 minutes working on the problems, then you delete all your code, and then we start again. And we're always working on the same problem, and we work in 45-minute increments, and then you always delete it at the end. And so it does free you up to try new things, um, write really bad code, see what happens. Um, but it it does this idea of just freeing yourself and realizing that you can work for 45 minutes and just get rid of it. You don't have to live with that baggage. And um, I've since sort of really pushed and moved moved even larger and um, do a lot of, I'm sort of an advocate of this thing called short-lived branches where you work, basically you have a day to finish tasks. And if you don't finish it, then you have to delete what you did. And then you start anew the next day because realistically, it's not the typing that takes a lot of time in coding. It's the thought of what you need to type. And so usually if you spend a day working on something and you're not done, it's not the code that is the big lesson and the big takeaway and the artifact from that day. It's all of the experimentation that you've done. And you can generally retype it in um, fairly quickly. And you're not left with the, the artifacts from learning. You know, the, the, there's there's code, just bad code in there that you put in there because you were learning, figuring it out. Um, and if you keep it around, you have to sort of work around it. Yeah, I really found that idea very to be very powerful um, when I read about it in your book. And it reminded me of um, there's a practice for writing essays that some people adopt. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of there's writing code and there's writing other types of, you know, there's writing texts. And I think a lot of your ideas would apply very well to sort of practicing and, and, and things like that. But one, one technique for writing essays is to write the introduction, write the rest of the essay, and then go back and rewrite the introduction. Uh, just yeah. delete, delete whatever you did, because as you're writing, I mean, no matter how well planned your, um, 
structure is, things will change and you will learn things along the way. And actually then just clobbering what you did at the beginning um, uh, isn't a waste of time. What would be a waste of time would be to sort of try to um, accommodate everything that came after your initial decision to your initial decision, even though you've come up with a better solution um, since you started. Yeah, and trying to shoehorn that in. It's the same with like talks when you have to submit an app abstract. And when you start building your talk, you realize that there's other things you want to say that might not be directly related to the abstract, but they're important. And so the thoughts can change. So I really, I think it's with a lot of uh, creative acts or acts of uh, creating something, what you start with is the, the initial idea that you start with is rarely what you truly end up with. Yeah. And the, uh, the courage it might take to um, actually start over, but realize that completely starting over might actually result in a quicker result than trying to accommodate what you did originally to what you've later realized you should do. Um, you write in your book also about p the ping pong pair programming style. Um, and I was wondering, and there are two types of it, I guess. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that, how that came about. Yeah. So, um, traditionally and sort of historically, pair programming was done with two roles, this driver and navigator, where the navigator's role was to type in the code as well as pay attention to the sort of minute-by-minute, minute, very small decisions that are made, whereas the, the, no, the driver was doing that. The navigator was really intended to look at the large uh, structure of the system. Where are we going? And the driver is really about making the small changes to get there. And the problem with that is that you need people who are very, I, I've found that you need people who are experienced pair programmers to do that because it can be, it can be dull to watch somebody code if there's not a great communication going on. And so over the years, I started really pair programming as a sort of part of my technique and part of my process back in um, 2004, which was when I was introduced to a lot of the concepts in extreme programming. And I found over the years, I would pair with a lot of different people and find that we, when you found, when you got really into the flow and you were pairing well, then it didn't really matter who was typing. There was this, you know, there was a constant verbal communication going on. There was nonverbal communication going on and you ended up just sort of like writing the code together and both people were paying attention to things at all levels. And I don't know if, I don't know exactly who introduced me to the idea of, of ping pong pairing. I, it must've been early on and probably, you know, when I was teaching people, I remember a couple of people that I taught and as we were building systems, it was easiest to say, like, I'm teaching you TDD, or test-driven development. And the easiest way I've found to teach somebody is for one of the pair to write the tests and the other person writes the code. And so over time, the person who is just learning test-driven development has concrete examples of what tests look like. What do, what do sort of... TDD tests look like? What form do they take? What are they focused on? 
but they don't have to think about that at the beginning. They can just focus on writing the code to satisfy them. And then over time, the, the person learning can start writing tests. And this, this technique for teaching turns out that it's really a great way to just pair. It keeps people active, it keeps people involved and focused on the problem at hand. And so one person writes the test, the other person writes the code. The goes back to the original person writing the next test, next code, and you bounce back and forth. And it, I think ping pong came up a little bit because, well, it, it has that feel of back and forth, but you also were sort of passing the keyboard back and forth to each other. And um, that really is my sort of my preferred way because that's the way I've found to be, um, especially for people who are new to pair programming, it's a great way to keep everyone engaged in the process the whole way through because the cycle should be on, a, on the order of minutes, if not even you know, a more frequent cycle of 30 seconds or something. And so it's hard to drift off and start tweeting or something like that if you are expected to pay attention to what they're writing right then. Um, and then there's there's also another form of it where um, what is sort of ping-ponged back and forth is the role of test writer. And so you write a test, your pair writes the code to pass the test, and then your pair writes the next test, and then you write the code. So it's sort of the role passes back and forth rather than the keyboard. Um, it also leads to things like why do we only have one keyboard on the computer? Why not have both people have live input devices so that it becomes even less of a, a delineation between roles and more into just together we're using both of our minds and to write the code. And, and over time, for the people who I've paired with uh, regularly, and I have a few people that are just we we pair so well, like we've just done it for a long time. We're on the same page and on the same uh, wavelength is that you, you bounce between these different styles. So when you're really engaged, you might be ping ponging and then someone has an idea. So they take over and just start writing um, both the tests and the code. And then you're watching because you're interested in like, Oh, what is their idea that they're doing? And then it bounces back and forth and, you can just sort of there's there's several different styles of, of pairing, but um, I like ping pong sort of for the for the best for intro pairs. Yeah, it's really interesting your um, uh, particular way of focusing on and clearly articulating the uh, form of experience that one has uh, when one when one is programming is quite is uh, quite um, unique in my experience. Um, and um, when I was researching for this interview, I saw. You give a there was a talk online where you talked about the Chicago School of Software Craftsmanship. I don't know if you remember that. That was from some time ago. But I was wondering if there is something. I mean, you're based in Chicago, and if there is something about software engineering or programming culture there that is different from other places. Um, I do remember talking about those sorts of things because there was a couple different places, London as well, that. Um, sort of had really active software craftsmanship communities in the early days before it sort of spread everywhere. And a lot of it came from who were the um, prime people that were, honestly, who were the loudest people? <laughs> not, not really that they were the most, uh, they had the best ideas. 
Um, but they were sort of the loudest in the different communities and had maybe the most network or the connections with people in other communities. And so I was one of the louder people at the beginning and um, got my name sort of associated with it. But there's Chicago is a Chicago is definitely, I feel a hub of, I guess, innovation in software development over time, different techniques, different ideas come out. There are people here who have uh, strong opinions. There are people here who are um, experienced. They've got a lot of experience writing software and not just writing software, but thinking about the act of writing software. Um, London is another one of those places that have has this uh, mass of people. And while we all talk to each other, there's um, styles that get brought out from that. So um, there's a few of us here in Chicago who, you know, talk a lot about extreme programming or um, work on rails, things like that. And um, so there are, are small differences. There's a lot of differences in sort of the test-driven development styles. There's sort of this uh, partially tongue-in-cheek, partially not, but there's sort of the the London style and the um, and some people say Detroit style, Chicago style of uh, test-driven development, and they they're not in conflict with each other as much as um, they sort of uh, augment each other. So knowing knowing the different the um, London style tends to be a lot more use of these test doubles when you're doing test-driven development, whereas the um, other styles don't necessarily. I'm. It's funny because I'm. I associate more with this with this so-called London style of software or of test-driven development. Um, but I think it's a lot of Chicago. I think in the beginning the people around our area and sort of in our net of influence focused a lot on um, professionalism, focused a lot on um, some of the techniques around software and some of the other places focused a little bit more on the technical aspects of it. Um, but there was never, it was never to the exclusion of the other aspects of software development. It was just who were the loud people and what were they interested in at the time and what's the startup culture like generally in Chicago right now? Um, it's really thriving. It's We've got a lot of great um, companies starting up here. The, the, the sort of difference that I've found is that Chicago tends to have more of a, more of the roots in industry and manufacturing and um, I guess making money. As, as sort of revenue. So whereas a lot of the coast, say the West Coast, um, Silicon Valley, which is sort of the, the, the big one people talk about, there's there tends to be less of an emphasis on building, say, a revenue-based sustainable company. Not to say that there aren't some of those out there, but they there's a much more of a glorification of the um, VC style uh, run from round to round to round. Um, trying to get to the point where someone will buy you. Whereas in Chicago, while we do have some of that, and we do have uh, venture capitalists here, and we do have a lot of, we have a very strong investment culture, 
um, a lot of the companies tend to be um, focused on revenue. Like, that's so really interesting. That's yeah, I didn't know about that. That's a really um, uh, interesting distinction between Chicago sort of style of startup culture and, and Silicon Valley. Um, uh, on, on that note, um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Harkin, um, what its mission is and how the um, engagement management system works uh, for newsrooms. Sure, sure. So Harkin came out of our local public radio station, our local NPR station, WBEZ, uh, from a uh, my co-founder, Jennifer Brandel, a few, handful of years ago, um, started a series there called Curious City, which had that goal of what happens if you ask your audience for story ideas. But that's been tried before. But ask just asking people what story I what should we cover? It lend like some people don't have ideas, some people have just sort of vague ideas, and you also get people who are very biased. Like you should do a story on my company type of thing. And so the innovate innovative idea that she had was what if you tapped into your audience's curiosity about the place or about a specific topic? And so rather it in hindsight, it feels fairly obvious, but, you know, that's the way it is with all sort of innovations. And so Jen started this series of Curious City called Curious, Curious City. It was very popular, still is very popular. And it got to the point where a lot of other newsrooms were asking her for help in starting up this style of series or this style of audience engagement and she was spending her lunch time and after hours working on it. So she decided to uh, quit WBEZ and start a company to help spread these ideas, which is really fundamentally what Harkin believes is that every individual deserves to be heard. What can we do to make it so that if you want to be heard, you have an opportunity to reach out and ask your question or um, make a statement? It's different than the idea of everybody deserves to be listened to, which I kind of say half, you know, half tongue in cheek, but everybody does deserve an opportunity to voice their curiosity or to ask a question and, and have a place where somebody is listening or is, is hearing what you're saying. And so uh, I joined with Jen. I was introduced to her in uh, uh, December of 2014, and we, I was on a sabbatical. I, I would say I was on a sabbatical learning to paint. Um, I had quit my job and was taking a little bit of time off. And then I met her, and she's a very, um, she's a very dynamic, thoughtful person that you meet and you just you want to help her do what she does. She's just an incredible visionary, um, has wonderful ideas, and I like to think of myself not as much as a visionary as much as a sort of supporter. <laughs> like I like to find people that have these grand ideas and help do what I can to help those ideas come to fruition. And so I joined with her, we co-founded Harkin and uh, went through a accelerator in San Francisco called Matter that is focused on media startups. And so they have, their, their partners are places like uh, KQED and um, Knight Foundation um, some of these big media places. And so the Associated Press also 
um, is one of their partners. And the companies that go through it all have a, a media bent. So we went through that in San Francisco, then came back to um, Chicago, started raised raised a uh, uh, some cash last fall. So the fall of twenty, what is last year? Fifteen, and sort of to to have a buffer to hire some people and really spread this out. And, and we have nine people now. Um, we're I think sixty somewhere around 60 paying newsrooms around the world. Um, so we have you know, like the Australian Broadcasting Company as a customer. There's a, a media conglomerate that has a bunch of newspapers in Hungary or newspapers and, and websites. And so they use us as well all across Hungary, which was wonderful because I have a, a, one, you know, a, a soft spot in my heart for Hungary. I love um, having lived there. And we, so what our technology is, we, we think of ourselves more as a technology-enabled company rather than a technology company. And so the, the thing that we are selling is, the, is a lot of the ideas, the consulting, the, um, we have what we call engagement coaches for newsrooms to help them figure out how is it that we, how is it that we can talk to our audience and, and hear our audience prior to putting the story out and getting just a comment section. Because traditionally what happens is you, you do a bunch of work, you have a, a few people sitting around a table figuring out what's, what stories should we do. Then you do the story, you put it out online, hoping that it's a story that people wanna see, and the only feedback that you get is via the comment section. And different people have different opinions of comment sections, I don't have a great one of them, but um, as an example, for example, uh, NPR, National Public Radio, they took comment sections off their entire website, and they're trying some other. Uh, we're we're working with them as well to uh, really engage with the audience in better ways, more one-on-one, less um, with less conflict that comment sections often can bring about. And so we have there's. Not to make a long story longer, but there's there's generally three phases to a reporting process. There's the pitch phase, the assignment phase, and the re- the actual reporting when the reporter goes out and does stuff. And so we have technology, we have small widgets and things that you can put on your website to elicit story ideas. Usually, the prompt is in the form of a question: "What are you curious about Chicago?" or um, uh, NPR, one of their series, put out a, a question about what are you interested or what are you curious about with regards to global disease epidemics? Um, And so people ask questions around that specific topic. The assignment phase, figuring out what the stories are that you wanna do, we have a a module that can be embedded on a website that allows voting rounds to be done. And we're currently working on a tool called the Reporter's Notebook, which is for engaging with sort of your super fans during the actual reporting process. So you can very quickly on a a frequent basis, send out small little dispatches to your subscribers and say, I'm, you know, today I got to interview so-and-so or tomorrow I'm interviewing so-and-so. Do you have any questions? And so the person can reply to it and send in a question, or I'm looking for pictures about something about this uh, area. Can, does anybody have any interesting pictures? They can send them back in. And, all of those are fairly, uh, 
especially the sort of question prompt, we call it a curiosity module, and the voting display, that in itself is is sort of commodity technology. You can use Google Forms or you can use Poll Daddy. You can use these things. And and Jen actually, when she started Curious City, used these tools. But what she found very rapidly was like almost immediately your spreadsheets that you've set up to manage the engagement, manage the questions that come in, manage the votes, all of this stuff, they become completely untenable. And imagine having even a hundred questions that you're sharing with the rest of the newsroom and you're color coding them, who's assigned, who's doing this and that. It just becomes, uh, Jen's term is um, spreadsheet hell. And when, some of the presentations that we've done, she'll put up little pictures of it and everyone in the room starts laughing because everyone has experienced that of trying to manage um, it with spreadsheets. And so we uh, built and sort of built of what we, we like to think is a very fit for purpose system called an engagement management system, which as votes come in, as new questions come in, you're alerted. We post them into Slack for you. You can go to this back end and um, categorize them. You can put them into lists. You can, you know, put other people's names on them. You can um, download email addresses, things like that. And that's really the bread and butter of the technology part of it is making it so that there is a there's. It's the only system out there that is exactly focused on building on making it easy to manage this style of audience engagement and um so yeah it's really interesting um as soon as i started reading about uh harkin um it made totally it, it was totally intuitive to me it totally made sense and i think that probably comes from our experience at lean pub which is all about you know, publishing early and publishing often and sort of, you know, getting that engagement earlier in the process than you would have otherwise. So, you know, in, in book publishing, I mean, I call it the doorstopper model where you, you on your own in your cabin in Norway, you spend years writing your book and then you just drop it finished, um, which is a great way of doing it if you want to do it that way. Um, but another way to do it, and it, you know, previously has been non-traditional way of doing it is to uh, put something out early on. Um, and then start getting feedback from people and seeing, you know, if, if that can help you make your book better, if it can, if, if it can help you sort of pivot to sort of dealing with the issues that your natural audience really needs addressed as opposed to the ones that you maybe thought they would need to be addressed. Um, so uh, one thing I was looking forward to asking you about if you're up for it is uh, there's a pretty big controversy around the media, the news media in the States right now um, on a number that's happening on a number of levels. Um, but one of them in particular is the influence of fake news and in particular, the influence of fake news on, on and I should sort of, of course clarify, although I'm sure everyone knows I'm talking about the U S election uh, that just happened. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, um, a lot of talk amongst journalists about, and, and, you know, the public at large about the impact that fake news and particularly fake news that was presented via Facebook may have had on the outcome of the, of the election and as someone who works in, in, you know, the media, I was in the States, I was wondering if you would, wouldn't mind talking a little bit about what you think about that. Yeah. Um, I like to use the term lies rather than fake news. <laughs> it's sort of that um, using a euphemism for something, but a lot of it is just, it's just lies that people put up there in the form of an article or something. Um, 
Yeah, it's a, I mean, it is a big, big problem. And I think it is indicative of the ever growing distrust of journalism in the States. Um, I don't, I don't really know what the, what all of the causes of it are, but it's, you know, you can go back to talking about the, the extreme divisiveness of or divided nature of America where we really do have I know the Washington Post put up that um, wonderful thing where you can put in a topic and it will show you side by side sort of the um, they call it the blue side and the red side so what are people actually seeing because of the Facebook algorithm and if you can get your thing into that algorithm it doesn't matter Facebook doesn't have a curators that say, you know, this is fact-checked. Um, and so a lot of it, too, I think is because we've moved away from knowing who our reporters are into these large, as things have um, aggregated into large national papers, and there's much less local journalism happening. It's harder and harder for people to feel loyal. It used to be that you were loyal to the New York Times and that's what you read every Sunday. But nowadays with the web, it's so easy to find any story. You go to Google, you type in a topic, you don't oftentimes tend to look at where you're going. You just look first hit, I'm gonna go do it. You trust Google or you trust Facebook to show you them. And one of our, our sort of foundational principles is that if you, we've moved away from really the one-on-one interactions of knowing who that reporter is and being a fan of a reporter. I do know people who are like, oh, I love reading The New Yorker, say, and there are um, certain writers in there that I like. Oftentimes they're movie reviewers because they like the movie reviews, but we don't have that as much. If you go ask just somebody, the next person you see, uh, who their favorite New York Times journalist is, you're probably not gonna get an answer. And, or even who, can you name uh, someone from the New York Times or somebody from the Post or something like that? And so as we've lost touch, and this is all of course personal conjecture, but if you, as we've lost touch with that sense that the news is for us, and in, and it's instead it's just repetitive. They're just trying to who can get the clicks. If you get the story out first, then you're going to get the clicks. You because we've lost that one-on-one feeling, it's easier to just read whatever and go. I don't have a way of saying I trust this one versus this one. And you know, do you go if you see a, something shared on Facebook and it's from bipartisan report? Is that trustworthy? If you see something from, you know, Breitbart, is that trustworthy? Spoiler alert, no. <laughs> but, um, you know, but there's there's a lot. And there are sort of conservative publications which are trustworthy. That, And then there are more liberal um, publications that are very trustworthy. They may have a bias about what it is that they report, but they tend to be fairly trustworthy. But we don't have a sense anymore of who those people are. And I think that leads to being able 
to have our, you know, our Facebook feeds showing us things where we don't even know. How do you check it? Like, it's to the point now where like half the people don't trust Snopes. So you can't go to Snopes. And if you go to a place that has a differing opinion or a different interpretation of it, then how do you know that that's correct? And it really like leads into this, just the sort of lack of knowledge in, in the U S the sort of general knowledge that people lack. Um, and talk about our education system is bad and things like that, but it, it, I think it's a lot of it like that. Yeah, that's a really good um, argument about, um, you know, the, the sort of lack of connection between um, the information that one is receiving and a kind of responsible person on the other side of it. Um, my personal, um, one of my personal takes on it is that, um, uh, and this is sort of like sort of high level uh, thing where this is totally banal, but that news has turned into entertainment. Um, but it reminds me that um, of the discourse around um, drugs. And one of the things that's very curious about uh, and a drug prohibition specifically, one of the really curious things about the discourse around drugs is that you're not allowed to talk about it being pleasurable. For some reason, when it comes to that discourse, the fact that people partly do it because they're enjoying themselves is something we're not allowed to say. What we have to invoke instead is social forces and historical forces and economic forces and material forces to the exclusion of the sort of immediate reality that people are kind of enjoying themselves when they're on drugs. Um, and, and I think that one aspect of news, when people talk about news has become entertainment, they often mean uh, that it has been diminished in uh, seriousness or something like that. But, uh, but the other side of that is that it's become this source of pleasure. Um, and what could be more fun than, you know, yet another conspiracy theory? And, 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 and what could be, and what's even more fun is indulging in not doing all that kind of rigorous self-policing that one does when one is thinking, well, is this trustworthy? Let me apply some analysis to this. Does this correspond to other things that I've heard from other sources? Instead, it's just this kind of like riot, um, of the passions internally. And, 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 you know, I mean, you know, to invoke one side of the election, Trump himself said on numerous occasions, we're having fun here. We're having a great time here. And if you saw, you know, you know, videos of those rallies and her descriptions of them, you know, people were they'd have tailgate parties beforehand, you know, like it was fun um, uh, for those people. <laughs> and uh, and anyway, I think that that that's also a really interesting thing about the media and the news media and what's happened in the States is that it's become this source of enjoyment and pleasure. Um, for people in a way that it, that it was maybe more a source of like information in the past. Yeah. And you have, and especially since even though there's a historically low trust in the media and trust in journalism now, it's still sort of built into us that they're supposed to be experts. And it's a wonderful feeling when I think something, I have an idea that something's wrong and then I go to a news site. It says it's a news site. And they're, they're, they're saying, you're right. You're right, Corey. That is bad. And you're like, yeah, it's true. Like that's, you know, it, it, that whole confirmation bias and, and things like that. Of like, I'm going to go to the sites. You know, I forget which comic it was. But they said, you know, the way you do research is you go to Google, type in the thing, and then Sure enough, that first link 
is this it tells you you're right and it's like oh yeah that's true and like i love one of my favorite pastimes is like friday night drinking scotch and going on youtube and looking at conspiracy videos and like i love i love the idea that the moon is actually in a as a hologram and as a projection and there's videos out there that show scan lines going across the moon and that's wonderful, and those are these conspiracy theories. Now imagine if I then went to Google and typed it in, and I saw a news site that said, yes, this is true, and here's the things that I'm, here's what we found, because of course we did our research. Instead of just going to YouTube and seeing a video that has ominous music, it's actually a news site that does it. And I think this goes back to why people we're so easily um, accepting of these fake news sites putting out lies and just stories, made up things, because we want to have, we want to have news sites tell us that we're right. And why, um, I wish I, I should have names of people, but somebody um, had said that Nowadays, the U.S. For, is so divided that it used to be that we had, like, there were facts, and then the different, uh, the different politically leaning uh, news sites and journalists would interpret those facts in different ways. But we've gotten to the point now where the base facts that are used to build up the stories are different. They're just wrong. So is our unemployment rate five percent or is it 40 percent like these are two facts that are put forward and the reporting is based on that and so when you go talk to somebody who has um differing opinions about our um, employment economy and i say wow we've done we're doing really well obama has really kicked ass in the in our economy you know unemployment's down to five percent the other person can come back and say, well, no, that's the, the real unemployment rate is, is must be around 40 or 45 percent. That's what I'm hearing is that there's this real shadow unemployment rate. And how do you argue about that? Like, how do you there's no sort of common ground to where you can get together and say, OK, well, let's as a pair, even though we have different sources or different interpretations of it let's look at the facts together and then come to a common interpretation of it trying to shed off the bias but when you start with different sides totally different facts you can't do that at all and that's why i think we have the the division is so pronounced and there's no communication between us well and invoking um what you were saying before about um how gratifying it is to have, say, a conspiracy theory that you've had or a suspicion that you have to see it on a news site and see it um, uh, reinforced. Um, really looking, and this is kind of a cliche, but looking into the facts rigorously is really boring. <laughs> for, most, <laughs> yes. for most people, it's, not, it's no fun. It's not exciting. It takes time. And it's like, well, really, I'm going to have to go read a paper written by a bunch of economists? You know, I'd rather have someone I follow on Twitter say it's 40% or, you know, there's, you know, actually like 
80 million undocumented migrants in, in, in the U.S. or something like that, right? And, and, and uh, that, that, I think that that disconnect is also really important that, you know, one side of the activity is fun and another side of the activity, the one that people don't do, naturally enough, is the one where, like, you personally have to be like a journalist yourself and go investigate and look at sources and maybe learn a little bit of statistics. And, you know, I mean, I don't want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, like I went and read the Republican Party uh, platform. Like, after they, you know, there's big meeting that they establish what is the plank. And I went out and read it, and it's dull. It's really boring. But when you read it, you say, oh, look, it's important enough to them to put it in the party platform that they want to fight marriage equality or that they want to spread the so-called bathroom bills around the country. And so you actually go read it and you find these these gems in there. And then you go read the Democrat Democratic platform and you see you have to interpret certain things and find out what it is that they value. But Nobody's going to do that. Instead, you're going to find, like you said, find somebody on Twitter who says, uh, you know, the GOP hates the LGBTQ community and puts this here, you know, and this is in their platform. I could have made it up. I could have just said that because nowadays, you know, well, you know, a perfect example over the last couple of days is, you know, Trump tweeted out that, you know, I talked to Tom Ford and I've convinced him now to not move the factory to Mexico. Well, he's been set, making this statement that they're going to be doing that throughout the campaign. And the Ford company has always said, no, we're not. We've never said we're going to do that. That We're not moving jobs to Mexico. What? That doesn't, we've never said that, but yet he continues to say it. And it's easier to just look at the people you respect on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever, and just sort of, like you're saying, not go do the research. And if your bubble that you've cultivated is does not include people who would be tweeting that, or even your bubble may be like that, but the Facebook algorithm has added its cultivation to your feed. You're not ever going to see that. And so the only thing you see is people retweeting that. You look at Donald Trump's Twitter thing and it's got, you know, 500,000 retweets. And you're like, what? 500,000 people agreed with this. So I do, you know, am I going to go actually look it up? And then it happens on, you know, on other sides as well. Um, not quite as much, but. Do you think there's a connection between the era of, financial uncertainty in the news media industry and the emergence of this fragmented uh, multi-sourced um, news fire hose that we're all exposed to now? I don't know. I don't think I would have, if anything, I would say that they're symptoms of the same thing or they, they stem from very similar places, but I don't, I've never really thought about that. So I don't think I would have a, a great <laughs> opinion. Do, um, do you think there's, um, do you have any thoughts about uh, how, I mean, the media as an industry doesn't move as one, um, but is there anything we can, people can do to help uh, change the culture away from where it's moved towards, which is, as you say, this sort of what the economists call this fact-free mm -hmm. environment? Mm 
Um, subscribe to your local newspaper. Like the 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 media industry is in is struggling financially, and there are some companies. Arkans, one of them, but there's a, a handful of companies who are trying to uh, sort of rise from those ashes to help the media industry move into what it's like in this really sort of super fast digital age. But so much of it is subscribe, like go subscribe to the New York Times. One of the encouraging things is that over the last week, the New York Times has seen a rise in subscriptions, a substantial rise in subscriptions. And I think a lot of the newspapers are as well, but not even just the national ones, but go, um, yeah, go to your local newspaper and just subscribe. It, you know, it's not a, not that expensive, and it it helps them, and it says that there's people out there who are interested in what they're um, talking about. If you go um, to um, inn.com, maybe .org, I think it's the. Um, let me take one quick yeah, sure. pause take to look up too. their name because they actually I would like their. Uh, what are they? Inn. Uh, or yeah, inn.org, Institute for Nonprofit yeah. News. Yeah. So what they do is they ho- build and host websites for a ton of nonprofit news organizations, the small focused, um, and they have just a wonderful list of members that are doing great journalistic work and they're all nonprofit. And so going to some of these and contributing to them um, and, you know, finding, finding ones that you enjoy reading um, and just send a little bit of money to them. It's, you know, a, a couple bucks here and there every month. If enough people do it, then the, these, the, the news organizations that are, doing good work will survive and be able to do better work with a little bit of contributions uh, to them. So there's um, like, you know, Mother Jones is one of the very large ones. There's a lot of people who, you know, agree with them, but there's, um, I think if there's any right offhand that I know off of them, but they just like have a, a ton of great, organizations um and then you know inn is a nonprofit as well that can uh, benefit from support of sharing it uh, sharing it around um, but they're one of my favorites that i think is is doing a great service to journalism as a whole yeah thanks a lot for pointing them out and for that that um suggestion for what people can do if they're concerned about the future of media uh yeah by donations i actually um or by well donate to organizations like the inn and um also uh, get out subscriptions. I actually one of the publications you mentioned. Um, I bought a subscription for, um, uh, inspired by that same uh, motivation. Um, just recently. Um, Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, switching to the subject of your book, um, uh, understanding the four rules of simple design. Um, you talk in there about um, the distinction between thinking about good design and better design. And I found the distinction compelling, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that distinction is and why better design is such an important idea. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes about from the idea that every software design is sort of intimately connected to the context that it's for and the context that it was built in. Context being, is it the first year of your company? Is it a multi-year project? Are the developers very inexperienced? Are the developers very experienced? Do you have a big mix of them? And so all of these contexts, these outside forces, influence the design choices that you make. Do you need to have everything in your code base super clean and super beautiful? Well, if you have very experienced developers, you might be able to skimp a little bit because they can work a little more efficiently in slightly messier code bases. If you have a lot of beginners, then it behooves you to spend the time to keep your code clean. If you are in the first year of your company and you don't even know if you can sell this product, you might need to take a, and cut a few corners. I prefer to cut features than corners in the code base, but you know, there's, there's trade-offs everywhere. And so the idea of good design to me implies that there's sort of this Aristotelian concept of in every context, this is good. Like a, a dodecahedron is a dodecahedron regardless of whether or not it's red or whether or not you're, you, you're trying to bounce it or something. So saying good design also implies that there's like yours is the best. Like I wrote, I built a, a good design and it may be completely bad in another context. And so what I prefer is this idea of if you have two designs to choose from, look at the one that best suits your context. Almost, almost always, the context is going to make you want to be able to change your software faster, especially in, when it's early in the project or early in the company. And so in general, better designs are more flexible. And so as you're making your design choice, you can say, this one is going to be a little bit easier to change in the future. It's not necessarily the most extensible or it's the one that you've made decisions about what people are going to want to change. But I don't want my design to calcify into this big mass that when a new feature comes in, I can't change it. And so pick the design decision that will allow you the most flexibility to change it in the future. And, and you, that's what I think is better. And you draw an interesting distinction between um, anticipating designing code to anticipate change and, as it were, designing code to anticipate a specific change. Yes. So often people think that preparing for the future means thinking, okay, let's, let's imagine what might happen under very, various different scenarios and then build in advance something that makes it easy to implement that idea, that, that change that you think might happen. And there's a, that's very different from what you were just describing, right? Because instead of coding for specific things that you think might happen in the future, you code for being able to change what you've done now easily. Yes. Yeah. Um, and and it's, a, it's sort of a subtle distinction, but it's a really important distinction, I think. Yeah, it is because it's it's we all developers have gotten themselves into that problem where you build a really extensible system and then somebody comes around and it turns out that they wanted to extend it in a way you didn't foresee. 
That always happens. And your decisions to extend in certain ways sort of make it so that you can't extend it in other ways. Every design decision you make is implicitly throwing out all of the other design decisions you could have made. And I, that, that always leads to trouble. But making your system where you can quickly go in, find the place that needs to be changed and make the change, that's the goal of everything. And that's where the four rules come in because the, the, the two major ones that are sort of the refactoring rules are the, the, on, a, on a simplistic level, you can say no duplication and good names. The no duplication says that every knowledge, every piece of knowledge in your system should have one and only one representation. So if a piece of knowledge in your system changes, you can go change it there and it ripples throughout your system. Good names make it so that you can find where things are happening. You can, if you look at a method and it's named something, you can be fairly certain that it does what it says it does. And so spending time on these two concepts make it so that when you come back in six months, you can very rapidly find the place where you have to sort of insert the changes. Um, you, you invoked the, um, the four rules there uh, and um, uh, Kent Beck's four, four rules, I think. Um, yeah. And uh, just taking a, sort of literally a page out of your book, I was wondering if you could point people to the further reading they might want to go to if they're not familiar with what those four rules are. Yeah, so if you, um, there's a couple places. One, I mean, go to Google, type in, um, you know, either the four rules of simple design or the four uh, or XP simplicity rules. There is a wonderful website where everything is sort of encoded, which is the C2 wiki. And it's currently under the, um, oh, I think maybe he finished it. He was upgrading it. Well, Ward Cunningham, the inventor of the wiki, which is, which is really neat. There's like, he actually is the one who created wiki, the whole idea of wiki. And wow. the C2, C2 is one of the original ones. And it was the place where a lot of the, the software thought and innovation in ideas were discussed back in the day. And so... There's, if you go there, if you go there, it's, um, it ends up being this time sink. It's almost like every important piece of, uh, I, every idea in software is there. Um, not really, but it, it feels like it. And it, it was the, um, what was it set up for the Portland the Portland um, Pattern Repositories Wiki, it was called. And it just has all of these wonderful discussions around this. And the four rules of simple design are there. And there's discussion around them about what duplication means. Um, another person is Joe Rainsberger. He's written a lot about it and he's just really thoughtful about how he writes these, uh, or how he thinks about these sorts of things. Um, and But the, the C2 wiki, it's just c2.com. If you go to um, uh, wiki.c2.com, that should take you to sort of the beginning of the patterns repository. And you can also find a lot of great discussions around software, or around design patterns, and, and just 
lots of interesting conversations that happened back in the you know late 90s uh, around these things yeah well thanks for that guide that's really uh, interesting i'm sure a lot of uh um a lot of our listeners will find it really helpful to have that nice summary um uh you've got an unpublished book on lean pub called fun with lambdas explorations through the lambda calculus and i know you gave you gave a talk about this that people could find um online and i i imagine um that uh, your maths background um, probably helps you a lot in understanding uh, and, and uh, you know, the topic. Um, and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit uh, for people who might not have a maths background about lambdas and what the connection is to computation. Yeah, so this book came about, I mean, I've been working on it for two years, I think, and I keep going in and out of working on it. And the idea... Uh, so what a lambda is at the core is a function that takes one parameter and returns a value. And uh, the lambda calculus came about in uh, when Alan Turing was building up the Turing, the ideas of the Turing machine, and this I, a lot of these concepts around computability and can you comp- what what are the limits of computability? Um, Alonzo Church came up with this idea of it it ended up being equivalent but can you build up computation using this idea of these functions that take a parameter and return another parameter or return a value and lambda the lambda calculus became um a lot of the foundations of a good number of our programming languages so um, all of the ML languages, things um, like that, that deal very heavily with this idea. But if you drop back to just that core thing of all I have is a, the only thing I have is a function that takes a parameter and returns a value. Where do you go from there? Like how do you, the ostensibly you should be able to build up all of computing. You should be able to build stuff that allows you to do everything that any other general purpose programming language can do. And so the book is really a lot of the a lot of the books around Lambda Calculus are very sort of academic. They talk about the, um, you know, the identity function and they talk about uh, K combinators and B combinators and Y combinators and they start putting them together and the, my idea for the book was that whenever I talked to people about it, they either were very academic and very high level and it was this, this mathematical thing, or they were people who had said, told me I've looked at them, but it just doesn't, who cares? Like, it doesn't make any sense. I don't get what's out of it. And so I started talking and a, and a, a friend of mine, Josh Cheek, and I started playing with it like just in Ruby, like what happens if I just start with a Lambda? Can I do different interesting things? And then, um, and then I ended up sometime later starting a book where the, the goal is to not really talk about the academic parts is to not go in, not even go into Lambda calculus, but to go in and start with a function, start with this identity function and slowly build up programming. So, you know, one of the first things you need to do is you have to be able to build a, um, 
say you want to build numbers. So you want to build a concept of numbers, but you don't have them. All you have is this function. How can you build up a numbering system? And so we go through, well, since I do test-driven development, the beginning of the book is building up a testing system. So I want to be able to build tests to test that my numbers work as I expect them to. Well, to build tests, you need to have a way of saying true or false. Well, to have something that says true or false, you need to have a way, a thing called if. And so we, we back all the way up and then build the concept of true and false and decision. And then we come back to this tests. And then we come into numbers and we start building tests based on what are called the piano axioms, which are a set of axioms around the natural numbers. And so we write tests that satisfy the axioms and build code to satisfy those tests. Um, and so it's really intended to be a uh, just fun, like a if we were just hanging out with a computer and I'm like, oh, hey, let's look at this and just start writing along. And so a lot of a lot of prose around it, but very little saying this is the K combinator. So you can compose the K combinator with the with the identity and that gets you the equivalent of uh, false. Whereas the K combinator is the equivalent of true. And so then it starts to, I mean, it just, it gets confusing for people. Um, there are a couple really great books. Um, another uh, LeanPub author, uh, Reg Braithwaite, he has a wonderful book on um, these, on combinators. And, and I, it's, a, it's a joy to read. All of his stuff is a joy yeah, to he's, read. Yeah, he's but. really... Reg is really fantastic. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks for that. Um, uh, actually, switching gears um, to um, mm -hmm. LeanPub and to self-publishing, um, yeah. you had a lot of success um, with understanding the four rules of simple design. I was mm -hmm. wondering if there's anything special you did uh, for marketing the book. Um, how did you get the word out um, about it? Um, coupons helped a lot. Oh, yeah. Like setting up a coupon for, um, since it's a technical book, conference season, like making a coupon and then uh, making it specific to that conference and then either asking the conference organizers, you know, using it as some form of almost sponsorship, it's a very small conference that they can give into their bag or just tweeting about it with their hashtag, not being obnoxious about it. Although I, some people probably say that I might be at times, um, but really like aligning with that, that I think has been a huge, uh, huge thing. And, you know, going on podcasts, talking all of the sort of standard um, marketing kind of things. But I think coupons have been a lot of the way that I've kept, because over the, I think it's like two and a half years since I wrote it, I think at 2013, maybe is when I wrote that book. So it's been maybe three and a half years. Um, it goes through waves. So I'll have a burst where I sell a couple hundred copies and it's generally because I, I keep on it. And so when conference season comes around or when something interesting happens, I'll, I'll tweet it out and tweet out a coupon for it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the biggest. 
That's that's really really good advice. Um, it reminds me of something I interviewed one another Lean Pub author named Phil Sturgeon a while ago, um, and he talked about how one of his tactics was to, um, yeah, uh, uh, use coupons to get his book in, to be sort of above the fold on the Lean Pub bookstore, like for mm. this week's bestseller, mm-hmm. so to be in the first two rows, um, which is another way that coupons can help. It sort of gets you that burst, and then you're there in a more prominent position on the bookstore. Um, I was wondering um, why you chose to self-publish and specifically why um, LeanPub. So there's a couple a couple of reasons around the self-publishing. One is I actually wasn't sure if I wanted to write a book. And so I started writing it because I was invited to speak at the Agile India conference in 20, I guess, 2013. And on the way there, on the plane, you know, I have a 20, whatever, 22 hour trip or something. I started writing out the talk and I was, I was explicitly going to be talking about the four rules of simple design. And I started writing out the talk, gave the talk, and then on the flight back, kept writing it. And I had spent, you know, whatever, five years, however many years, four or five years working on, you know, talking about the four rules during code retreats. And so it was all in there. And I came back and I I told my girlfriend, I said, I think I'm writing a book, but I didn't want to get into the situation where there was an expectation or a stress around it. Because I I have lots of friends who've written books and it's always so stressful. And there's like, it's just a a real, um, I've I've looked at them and I'm like, I don't ever want to do that. And so as I was working on it, I decided that I didn't actually want to tell anybody I was writing a book until I was sure that it was going to be done. But I, doing that, I can't just, it didn't make sense just to write it, um, you know, and just have it in random files. And, and I looked around and I had talked to some of my friends who are publishers and I didn't want to write a long book as well. So the book itself, I think is 85 pages. It's a, it's a short, very concise uh, thing. I wanted it to be an uh, electronic publication because I wanted to be able to put links out to other things. And any publishers that I had talked to, there's, there's expectations, there's minimums, there's you know deadlines and all of that. And so I looked around at some of the self-publishing platforms because that was about when I started noticing was about in 2012. I think there was a, uh, it felt like there was a surge of self-publishing platforms coming out and it may have just been that I noticed them. <laughs> and so that's, that makes a surge in the, in the universe. And I guess I had looked, you know, it might actually be Reg that was the reason I went lean pub initially because i had no idea i hadn't i didn't know anything about it and all of them look the same but then when i looked at some of the tool sets i loved that uh at the time you know lean pub was uh connected to github which i use it was at the time it didn't have it, at the time it was only uh the dropbox this distribution so when you did a preview it would come into dropbox um and i and, oh, and you also, I think, at the time had to actually explicitly say, make me a new copy. And I think now you can trigger it with a with a push or something. But 
the fact that I could write it in Markdown um, was important to me because I I feel comfortable writing in Markdown. The the LeanPub manual was great. Like I read through that and it was so clear how to do things. Well, thank you very much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Did you write that? Uh, I had a big hand in it. Um, it's okay. pretty pretty rare to get manual uh, shout outs or compliments, but so, <laughs> so I really appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I downloaded it and read it and it was like, I can write this. Um, I liked also at the time the constraints of you. It's not like you can lay it out any way you want. You know, especially at the time, I think there's there's more flexibility now than there was back then. But it was like you write Markdown and you can, you know, if you want the call out to look like this, you put this uh, markup in there. And I wasn't as interested in do sort of like pixel perfect. I need this to be here and this, all of that. I wanted to just get the content out and have it come out in a way that looked good. Yeah, so that, it, that was good. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That that's really interesting. Um, that's um, um, regular listeners to this podcast will know that um, you know, core to LeanPub's philosophy is the idea that when you're writing, except for a very small subset of projects, formatting is procrastination. When you're done <laughs> writing, when you're done writing, if it's very important to you, please you know use our InDesign export, get a book designer, do whatever you need to do. Um, but often, and, you know, having written some myself, you know, you do find yourself instead of writing, instead of thinking about what you're supposed to be writing, you end up playing around with formatting. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, people can do what they want, but one approach is to say, let's actually try and get a lot of those ideas, just not even present them to people at the, during the period when they're writing, give them what they need to quickly make, generate really good books, like really, really good looking books, but not, as you say, pixel perfect. Don't worry about that until, until the time comes. Yeah. Um, and being a technical book, I didn't really need, like, I really was about just getting, get get the content out there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would have messed around with the formatting because writing is very, um, it's a struggle for me. And so it, while that book actually flowed out because I'd been saying the things for five years or four years or whatever it was, um, it, it still is a struggle for me to write because I just don't have the practice around it. Um, I'm more of a speaker than a writer. And so having those constraints where I could just, you know, I, I, use, I write in Vim, so it's just pure text just kind of in there writing and not having to worry about all of that stuff. Did you publish it in progress or did you publish it all um, in one chunk? That book I published in, I, I didn't put it out that it was even available to sort of, I don't know what, what the exact term is, not bid, but put your thoughts on, on how much it should be cost. Um, oh, right. Yes. Yeah. That, that's, um, we, have a, we have a mode where you can have a landing page for your book available to the public before you publish it. And then people can sign up and say, notify me when it's published and they can say how much they'd be willing to pay for it and share their email address with the author if they want to and things like that. Yeah. Which was a great feature. I, I got a lot of people telling me how much they pay for it, which helped me because I, I had no idea. Um, but I think I published it almost complete, if not totally complete, because even leading up to like until it was done, 
I, I almost wasn't sure it was going to be done. And so I was still, you know, being my first and being like, I'm, you know, I struggle. I wasn't, I wasn't completely confident. And so when I was, you know, whatever, 90% confident that I was going to complete it, that's when I put that landing page up and started gathering that. And I think it was like two weeks after that, that I published the book and, and put the cost out. And um, I liked how it told me all of the different statistics around the price of like, if you want to, you know, make the most money, it's this. If you want to have half the people buy it, then do this. Uh, that was a very nice geeky. Yeah, uh, my uh, co-founder, Peter, will be very pleased to hear that. He yeah. wrote that uh, years ago. Um, it's a text you see um, on LeanPub, just for everyone listening, um, that explains at length, you know, uh, how much you can make under different scenarios and things like that. And it's, it's really, yeah. it's, it is very nerdy and very fun. Um, yeah. and serious at the same time. Um, the last question I have about your mm -hmm. process is um, you had an editor for your book, uh, someone named James Rosen. Um, and I was yeah. wondering, did you, did you uh, go into the writing process thinking, I mean, I, I, now that I know a little bit more about its genesis, I, I can see how you know, it started out um, uh, not necessarily with the intention of being a book, but did you hire or did you get the editor at the end or did you have the editor helping you along the way was it something you expected to need um i expected to need it what i was very very lucky with with james was i when i when i was comfortable enough to mention to people that i was working on it i put out on twitter that i was looking for early reviewers people to read it and give me feedback on it and i got a bunch of responses got a, a lot of really great feedback from people. James stepped up and just edited the thing like crazy. It was amazing. And he just, he's not an editor. Like he's not officially, he's a software developer like I am, but he dove into it and gave me such amazing feedback and made it um, so much more readable <laughs> that, you know, I just kind of was just like, well, you're the editor. You know, you get editor credits on this because he spent a lot of time and a lot of um, wonderful feedback. And I was so appreciative of him. But it was just incidental. He was somebody who I've met before, didn't didn't know him tremendously well, but he followed me on Twitter and um, and just kind of stepped up on it. And I um, I've since then bought him a couple meals. I've told him that he he basically never pays or shouldn't ever pay for his dinner if we have dinner. So I'm not. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, that's generous on, on both sides, um, <laughs> I guess. Um, my last question is, um, mm -hmm. uh, is there anything that um, if, if we could build a magic feature for you, uh, what would that be um, on LeanPub? Is there anything that you can remember along the way that, you know, would have been a nice to have, but you didn't have? Um... I still struggle a bit with book organization, like file organization around the book, especially around code snippets. Um, getting them, like I like to run, especially with this Lambda's book, getting the code to, like I write the scripts and then including them, keeping them up to date. I don't know if I'm missing something, but it's sort of a, a struggle to have them go along because for example in, in the in the lambda's book every code snippet sort of builds on the previous code snippet and so it's almost as though 
if you were able to say, I want this set of code snippets to be based on this file and go over the history of the commits on that file and give me a sort of time-based or commit-based code snippet. Um, not at, not interactive, but just like snippet one is the first commit, snippet two is the second commit. And even if even if it took putting a SHA in there in the little uh, external resource thing, I think that would be really, that would help me a lot because I get, I struggle with that of keeping them up to date and up to sync and making sure that they're correct. Does that make sense? Uh, mostly. Um, okay. I'll, I'll pass it on to our team. I haven't written a programming mm -hmm. book myself and I'm not, not a programmer. I do some programming, but um, but I'll definitely pass that on. Um, uh, that sounds like a really good idea. We do have uh, kind of in the hopper designed a um, and, and like a versioning kind of system mm -hmm. that might go some some of the features in it and i'm not sure when we're going to get around to building it but um it's it's pretty well thought through and it, it sounds like we could incorporate something like what you're suggesting into that as well we do we do currently have a versions feature but it's very rudimentary and you might not have even noticed it um uh but but it it um and it you can't you can't name versions you just know what date and time um mm -hmm. so it's but it, but it is there because you know obviously authors their work is very important to them and knowing there's backups and yeah. Things like that is really important. Um, well, anyway, I wanted to thank you, um, Corey, for a really great discussion. I had a really good time. Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for your, your time, and thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Um, good luck with uh, Fun with Lambdas. Um, I hope, <laughs> hope to, I'm looking forward to the day when that's that's published. And I just Yeah, me to, too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, well, yeah. thanks so much. Thank you very much.